Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their journey to advance patient-centered, customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Folks, uh, our focus today is really on insights into some of the most profound shifts that are happening uh, in healthcare today. We're going to focus on a specific organization, but I think that uh, these, uh, these shifts and transformations are happening across the country. The major theme, the plot line of this interview is really a story about a traditional health insurance company, Aetna, that is redefining what it means to be a payer, moving from an insurance company to a healthcare company, really to a health company, and uh, also moving from the fee-for-service to population health and then into personalized medicine. Uh, they're really breaking the mold and reorganizing healthcare delivery to be much more engaging of consumers and patients, much more value-based and outcome oriented. It's one example of what the new leadership in healthcare must become bold, courageous, disruptive, and highly collaborative, working with other organizations, both within and outside of the industry in completely new and different ways. In my opinion, much of the new efficiencies and effectiveness of healthcare will be created not just within organizations, but actually between organizations by combining and complementing assets and value propositions and by eliminating the inter-organizational redundancies. Our guest this week, Dr. Harold Paz, uh, has a, a tremendously impressive academic as well as executive background in healthcare. As you'll hear, he's the executive vice president, chief medical officer for Aetna. He leads clinical strategy and policy at the intersection of all Aetna's domestic and global business. And what you're going to hear about, uh, just give you a little bit of a preview, is just some really exciting initiatives and interventions. Aetna's wellness index, uh, the three pillars that uh, that uh, Aetna is uh, working off of. This is their strategy. And uh, Dr. Paz really believes this should become the new triple aim. So you'll hear about that. You'll also hear about some of the really highly innovative and collaborative joint ventures that Aetna has entered into. And um, he's going to describe uh, this third wave of uh, healthcare personalization uh, a bit more. And uh, finally, I think um, what's really, really important too is he's going to talk about the very intentional and comprehensive approach that Aetna is taking to combating the opioid epidemic in our country. So without further ado, let's, uh, let's drop into this interview that we uh, just recorded a few days ago. Dr. Paz, you have a, an incredible background in uh, the academic healthcare world, as well as being a physician uh, executive on the provider side. And I'd really love for you to tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you migrated uh, from the provider side and the academic side into your current role and position uh, in a major payer in this country. Well, thanks, Zev, and uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be with you uh, this afternoon. Um, this is, I've been with Aetna now uh, about, uh, about four, a little over four years. I'm executive vice president of the company and, and chief medical officer uh, of Aetna. Uh, before um, I joined the company, I was uh, the chief executive officer uh, of uh, Penn State's health system, and I was also senior vice president for health affairs and dean at the Pennsylvania State University, Dean of the College of Medicine. Um, I had been in that role for uh, a little over eight years. And before that, I, I was Dean of Robert Wood Johnson Medical School in New Jersey and CEO of the Robert Wood Johnson University Medical Group. So I had spent uh, about 20 years um, in uh, academic medicine, uh, leading two institutions and um, um, found that to be exceptionally rewarding and, and enjoyed uh, every aspect of what I was doing. My my research uh, going back a ways uh, was started out in, in critical care medicine. Um, I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician, and I still get to practice the pulmonary piece uh, at the VA hospital here in Connecticut. Um, I have a faculty appointment at Yale. And um, over the over the years of doing critical care research, starting out in septic shock and ARDS, I became more and more interested in clinical outcomes. And over time, um, 
became more and more interested in looking at um, uh, approaches to population health. A lot of the work that we were doing uh, at Penn State was focused on on population health and and identifying ways to improve health status of uh, broad communities. Um, and um, that was an enormous opportunity for us, being the only academic medical center in all of central Pennsylvania and caring for uh, a population of 5 million people. Um, one of the areas that, that really had my interest was how could we identify solutions for individuals, much like at the time, uh, this whole notion of uh, precision medicine or, or personalized medicine was coming to fruition. At Penn State, we started one of the first institutes of precision medicine in the country. And I thought, you know, it wouldn't be interesting if we could use a similar approach in thinking about, um, um, about health and wellness in general. So as you know, there are studies that go back to uh, around 2001, excellent work, um, McGinnis published a paper in Health Affairs, I think it was in 2001, looking at determinants of health. And, you know, from that and other work, we learned that genetics per se attributes to about 30% of health status. And um, healthcare itself attributes to about 10% of health status. And then the balance um, is the result of behavioral determinants of health, or about 40%, social determinants of health, 15 and environmental determinants of health, 5 so my thinking was, could we come up with approaches that, you know, would, would address um, health and well-being through a, a multimodal approach, a multifaceted approach of addressing personalized health for each individual based on their own specific needs? Um, at around that time, a member of uh, my uh, campaign committee, you know, like any not-for-profit academic medical center, you have a fundraising committee. And... A member of the fundraising committee uh, is still here at Aetna as our executive vice president for uh, uh, government services. And uh, I learned that uh, through a series of different conversations that Aetna was looking for a um, EVP um, CMO. Um, my boss, uh, Mark Bertolini, was very interested in um, transforming Aetna from a health insurance company to a health company and ultimately to a healthcare company. And uh, uh, I had an opportunity to, uh, to meet with Mark here in Hartford. And we had a series of conversations and uh, one thing led to another. And I decided it would be fascinating to, to, um, to come to Aetna with its vast amount of information and data and, um, and this um, really exciting vision for this transformation and and to come on board to um, be responsible for the clinical strategy um, for um, that undertaking. And, and my focus in, in our clinical strategy was what I just described, which is how can you uh, move from what I've called, you know, the first curve of fee-for-service uh, to the second curve of population health to ultimately this third curve of personalized health and um, and to address this in ways that allow each individual to achieve their own aspirations for improved health and wellness. So, so Dr. Paz, I really, really love this second and third curve, the population health and per personalized health. So once you arrived at Aetna, how did you begin to implement uh, the second and third curves? Um, after my first six months at Aetna, Mark told me that I had, that was my six-month sabbatical, so to speak, where I tried to learn every facet of the, the health insurance industry, but also how you run a $60 billion global company like this. It also gave me the chance to do a lot of thinking about, you know, given all these resources, if I were to come up with a strategy to approach that, what would it look like? And in fact, we, we've done that. We launched a uh, uh, our first phase, a pilot of, of that approach. It's called Aetna Care in New Jersey um, in uh, January of 2017, where nurses that we employ at Aetna literally go in the home of members with chronic illness. And keep in mind that um, uh, two two percent of our members in our commercial plans. Uh, 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 um, are, uh, are, are receiving about 50% of the resources. And in Medicare, 
um, 7% of the population is attributable to 50, to 50% of the resources. So, you know, while 75% of our members at Aetna, and we have over 20 million medical members, um, are healthy, you know, the balance have very specific needs. And of that group, there's a very small cohort that have immense needs. So the thinking was, let's have nurses go in the home. Let's have those nurses partner with physicians in practice in the community to help um, members um, follow evidence-based care to make sure that there is appropriate adherence to treatment. And as you probably know, in patients with chronic illness, uh, at the end of about three months, about only 50% of patients are uh, adhering to the medications that were prescribed. And oftentimes, because of a lack of interoperability of health information, physicians aren't really even aware of um, the patient taking the meds or not. Um, and so the nurses would go in the home, they would open the medicine cabinet, you know, they would see the same row of of medica- bottle of medication in a row unopened, they'd have an opportunity to communicate back to the physician and allow there to be an opportunity to address appropriate treatment and adherence to, to therapy and to make sure that the, the patient or the member is engaged with um, the treatment plans. They could open the, um, the pantry and, and see if the patient is receiving healthy nutrition and if not, uh, we, have a, we have a partnership with a supermarket chain where uh, nutritionists, certified nutritionists, meet with the patient, the member, uh, in the supermarket, um, hopefully mostly in the fruit and vegetable aisle, to teach them about uh, healthy nutrition. Dr. Paz, in our correspondences, you've written about the three strategic pillars at Aetna. So how did you uh, take this first phase of your work and uh, then augment it with perhaps some non-traditional approaches that are based on the three pillars. We have an array of different solutions that we can literally bring in the home. We're even now looking, uh, working with our physician partners on telehealth solutions where the nurse can bring this into the home as an extension of the care they provide in the office and actually do vis- uh, virtual exams. So the whole concept is, is predicated on, on three uh, pillars, for lack of a better word. One is around engagement. The second is around creating a, an ecosystem of solutions, traditional and non-traditional. Traditional, first and foremost, being physicians and other caregivers. Non-traditional being digital apps and, um, and uh, telehealth and, and different approaches like that. Um, and also um, bringing in um, uh, pharmaceutical companies. So, f- for example, uh, one of the companies that we work with, Merck, um, has uh, provided adherence tools uh, that our nurses use with these members to make sure they're adherent to their meds. And if you look at it from their perspective, it's a win-win because if the patient's taking their meds, um, they'll not only get better, hopefully, but also um, they're able to provide more of their product to that patient. And the physician will not think that because the patient is not taking the meds that the drug failed, when in fact the drug could have worked fine if the patient just took it. So we have a number of different partners in, in the pharmaceutical and device space that we're working with to create this ecosystem of solution. Certainly things like physical therapy um, and, and working with hospitals and hospital systems as well. Um, and then the third pillar is the financing of healthcare and, and recognizing that the way to create shared, um, a, a, a shared set of expectations and rewards for, for the, for the patient getting better is through shared financial risk. And, um, and that means value based contracts, um, with, with the physicians, but even now, uh, with those pharmaceutical and device companies. And we have, more than half of our contracts today are now value-based contracts. In the ACOs that I mentioned a minute ago, uh, they're, they're taking risk against the outcomes. We know our member has financial risk, particularly if they're in a high deductible plan. And we certainly know that employers or payers like the government are, have financial risk against uh, outcomes. So trying to create a, 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 a platform, so to speak, where there's shared financial risk can be a way to really align incentives, which is something you can't do 
in a fee-for-service environment where you're paying for volume as opposed to paying for value. Um, and, um, and, and, and we're continuing to advance that. We have now dozens of value-based contracts with pharmaceutical companies and device companies. We've only announced three. The one with Merck uh, for their diabetes drugs, Genuvia and Genumet, we announced one uh, with Medtronic for their insulin pump. And the one we announced most recently um, is with Basira Pharmaceuticals for their um, uh, for Expiril, which is a non-narcotic pain medication for uh, surgery patients because of our um, initiative uh, regarding the opioid epidemic in this country. It sounds like these value-based contracts and partnerships and collaborations with providers and pharmaceutical companies and device manufacturers are, um, well, what they do is they really create synergies that didn't exist before. Um, it really allows us to create this ecosystem in those three pillars. So uh, engagement, uh, the health ecosystem of solutions, and then the shared financial risk. And and I would argue, and I've, I said this a few weeks ago, you know, maybe in the old world, we talked about the triple aim as being access, quality, and cost. And maybe in this new world, this third curve world, we can talk instead about engagement, right? Because it's really not about bringing, about the patient coming to me as a doctor. It's really about, can we offer the patient an array of solutions that um, will keep them healthy? Two, I mean, quality is obviously paramount to excellent care, but at the same time, it's, it's, um, it's the outcomes that really matter. So it's really the, it's maybe instead of quality, it becomes health and wellness. We know we're successful when individuals can achieve their aspirations for health and wellness. And then third, instead of talking about cost, let's talk about value. Instead of just saying we spend a certain amount of money on X, Y, and Z, let's say, let's talk about what we get for what we spend. And, and that's where the value proposition comes in. And I would propose maybe that becomes the triple aim for the future. You know, along these lines, uh, Aetna and, and many other payers and provider groups are uh, characterizing themselves as health companies instead of healthcare organizations. So could you say a bit more about uh, how, uh, how Aetna is uh, focusing on health and how you all are advancing that? So one of the big debates is, you know, how do you know if someone's healthy? What's health and wellness? It's one of the biggest challenges I think we've had and maybe one of the big controversies in where people think that healthcare has, you know, not met up to their expectations is this challenge we have in defining what's health. I mean, what could be what's health for you might be different than what's health for me. Um, it's something that we spend uh, over three trillion dollars on in this country. Um, and, um, you know, uh, we know that roughly a third of that goes to total waste, about 600 billion in administrative waste, 400 billion in clinical waste. Is there the opportunity to repurpose those dollars to achieve better health and wellness? And if we're going to do that, we have to measure it. So one measure that's been around for quite some time is healthy days. And, um, it goes all the way back to 1947. So 70 years ago, World Health Organization defined health as, as physical health, social health, and emotional health. And healthy days as a recall test asks individuals to recall over the past 30 days uh, against those parameters, their, their health status. Um, we wanted to come up with something that had took a deeper look at it and was uh, more analytical. Um, so we partnered with the Chan School at the Harvard School of Public Health, the Harvard School of Public Health in Boston. And... Um, decided to come up with uh, something called the Aetna Wellness Index. And we've been developing this over the past year. And it looks at health and wellness in six domains. So not surprisingly, one is physical health. The second is emotional health. But the other four are, are really interesting. One is financial well-being. And as you may have seen the study recently in JAMA that indicated that individuals that lost substantial financial um, wealth in the 2008 crash had a higher likelihood of, of poor health, premature death. So financial well-being is very important. The other three include purpose, social connectedness, 
and character, all exceptionally important. And I would argue that if you look at, for example, a hotspot map of the U.S. and look at the opioid epidemic and look at the parts of the country where there's a six-fold greater incidence of, opi- of opioid overdose and death than other parts of the country, I would guess, and again, I haven't done a scientific study, but I would guess that there are probably greater issues there around purpose through imp- unemployment, through social connectedness as a result of isolation, through character, and obviously financial well-being, particularly if someone doesn't have a job. And then what happens is you see higher incidence of addiction and overdose and death. Um, those have so much to do with the social circumstances of the individual, much more so perhaps than the healthcare per se. Now, that's not to discount inappropriate overprescribing of opioids, but when 115 people die each and every day of an over of an opioid overdose, I mean that's that's a national crisis, and we have to find ways to really get at the root cause of this. Doctor Paz, I, 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 I so respect and admire uh, your focus on uh, the opioid crisis. It's it's so necessary. It's the right thing to do, and 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 your larger focus on the social determinants of health, which are, are so critical to healthcare in this country. Um, and and, and uh, your three pillars of engagement and creating an ecosystem of solutions based on outcomes and that third pillar of shared financial risk, I could really see how it fits together and it synergizes. So, so just building on that, let me ask you a question, and I'm sure this is on everyone's mind. The acquisition of uh, CVS, uh, I'm wondering how does that fit into these three pillars from a strategic and clinical perspective as you've been talking about it? Um, and, um, and also, um, how does it advance this whole movement of uh, consumerism and healthcare? Sure. Well, so first, as you can imagine, I, I can't talk about the merger with CVS because we're in the middle of a, a review at the Justice Department. So, it, it wouldn't be um, uh, appropriate for me to, to comment on any of that. But I can say this. Um, if if you would have gone back, uh, you know, and some of the presentations I gave two, three years ago are on uh, on the web, you know, you, you would see in that health ecosystem, health ecosystem of solutions around the individual, one of them was a CVS mini clinic, for example. Um, look, we know rough numbers that only about 40% of Americans have a primary care physician. Uh, many individuals get their care in a lot of different places. Um, and, uh, and millennials, you know, uh, are uh, living in a world where uh, today um, they, they, don't go, uh, they don't go shopping and, you know, into stores. Retail is a totally different experience. Um, they, uh, haven't been in a bank in 15 years. They do their banking on their phone and they don't stand on busy street corners waving at yellow vehicles. They just call up a a car through Uber or Lyft. I'm pretty sure that their expectations for healthcare in the future are not going to be the same as mine were, um, in that day. And uh, we have to recognize what, you know, many have called consumer-driven health care, that individuals are going to expect to get their care different ways. And I think this is much like retail, where, um, you know, all of us as, as in, you know, purchasers uh, have different expectations and needs. Some, some people love going into a store um, and a big department store. Other people like going into a, you know, into a small little store in their neighborhood or even to a mini mart attached to a gas station. And other people don't want to leave their home and they want everything delivered to their doorstep in a, in a brown box. Um, there are a lot of different ways and it, it has much to do with, um, with, um, a lot of issues. And I think in healthcare, it'll have a lot to do with, are you one of the Aetna members in that, in that 2% group or that 7% group that I mentioned that, you know, has exceptionally high needs? Or are you in the 75% group that is generally healthy and only occasionally looking for uh, opportunities to get care? Um, I think whatever it is, we have to look in a much more holistic way around what are the solutions that are needed? Um, you know, we in, in some cases, it's... Um, 
It's going to be traditional health care. And uh, as someone that still practices, I can tell you, I, I believe that's exceptionally important. Uh, we have to find ways to offer it in the most convenient way possible to make it timely and efficient. We have to, to free up physicians and, and other clinicians to do the work they were trained to do. It's, to me, and I'm on this panel, the National Academy of Medicine on clinician burnout, it's tragic that we have the burnout rates that we have in this country among physicians and nurses and other clinicians, we have to get them out of the, you know, the administrative burden of work they're doing, spending enormous numbers of hours in front of a, uh, a keyboard typing information in, um, and we have to free them up to be able to do the work that they were trained to do and that they enjoy if we really want to address issues around burnout. So I think there are huge opportunities to do that, to create um, – an effective interoperable system of health information, one that's logistically driven where individuals can get the right care at the right time and the right place. And in some cases, that'll be in the home. In some cases, that'll be in an ICU, in a quaternary care center. And in other cases, it'll be in other settings that are most appropriate for their needs and, and their conditions and, frankly, what they desire. Uh, and that's, you know, that's how I view the types of uh, changes. You, you know, I really appreciate, and I also want to just punctuate this point you're making, that we need to begin to segment the population by uh, patients' needs, because patients have different needs at different times in, in their own journeys. And it's, it's so important. So, so thank you for discussing that. In, in terms of the changes, uh, how big a change uh, are we talking about? And, and what fundamentally is driving that change. You know, we are clearly at an inflection point in, in this country as it relates to health care. This is not a generational change, I don't believe. I think this is a once-in-a-lifetime once change that we're seeing. And like any change, it happens quickly in about 10 years of time. And then we'll reach equipose again and maybe a new steady state. But I think it's driven by two things. And I think it's driven by, number one, this huge bubble of waste in the health system, a uh, trillion dollars that is more than we spend on education in this country each year. And now what is coming in to, to turn everything on its head is this influx of disruptive innovation and technology, which is offering solutions that we're only beginning to appreciate and understand. And at the end of the day, we will have a system that looks very different than the one we have today, I believe. And if in the end, what happens is, is that we can give patients the opportunity to achieve their aspirations for health and, and, and well-being. And, you know, for someone, for me, it might be running uh, six miles tonight, but for someone else who's, you know, 85 years old, it may be just walking down the aisle to, you know, to watch their grandchild get married. Um, but that's exceptionally important, number one. And number two, to make sure that clinicians and, and those participating in delivering that care can do so in a way that allow them to do what they were trained to do and, and not, you know, burden them with huge amounts of administrative overlay, which, which wastes $600 billion a year, and to help them practice evidence-based care, which, again, could save, you know, in a perfect world, another $400 billion a year. And those dollars, trillion dollars, could be repurposed to address the social and behavioral and even environmental determinants of health. And we know from studies that in terms of behavioral determinants of health, the things that we have to address first and foremost is addiction to nicotine, to alcohol, to opioids. It's about appropriate nutrition, weight control, and exercise. If we can just tackle that, we've tackled a lion's share of opportunity. In terms of social determinants of health, I mean, the, it's vast, but in terms of what a healthcare system can address almost immediately, it's about uh, access to food and transportation for appropriate care delivery. And in terms of environmental determinants of health, you know, there are certainly things that need to be addressed and that system, health systems themselves can be engaged in to help deliver. Uh, and um, I think the remaining 30% of the genetic determinants, um, there's so much terrific science underway and we're beginning to see, we're still on the early part of the curve, the impact of the discovery that will occur as a result of biomedical research in addressing 
the genetic determinants That's as well. That's really helpful. Thank you for that. I, I want to uh, return in a moment to this uh, issue of consumerism and personalized health that you've been discussing over the past few minutes. But uh, I want to pause for a second, sort of step back for a moment. Um, as I've been listening to you, um, I think I've taken something for granted. Uh, I've spent the last few years working with uh, payers and working with employers. And uh, quite honestly, I've become accustomed to hearing uh, payers talk about um, their work uh, in clinical care, whether it be with care managers or with apps, uh, et cetera. I think for some of our listeners, they may actually be a bit surprised to hear how involved and engaged uh, both payers and, for that matter, employers are actually in clinical care. So, so what I'd like you to respond to is how do you see this world, this progression uh, with all your partnerships and collaborations that you've mentioned already, your acquisition of CVS? Um, how do you see payers in the in the ecosystem? Where do they fit in now? Uh, where do you think they're going to be in three to five years? I mean, where's Aetna going to be in three to five years? Yeah, so great question. So I would say this, you know, to, to try to understand the future, you have to really look at the past. So Aetna has been around as an insurance company since 1853. And for the first part of its history, it was writing insurance on property. Uh, and then life insurance. And it, the first health policy was written at Aetna in 1899. Um, on one of our walls here in this building, there's a, there's a plaque that commemorates that. But, you know, in 1899, what was health insurance? It was just that. It was an insurance policy. It was there to cover an individual for a catastrophic health occurrence. Insurance companies were not payers. Um, and what has happened, um, arguably, since, uh, you know, probably just pre-World War II, but certainly with the passage of, of Medicare and Medicaid, health insurance companies became payers. Um, and I think that's unique, obviously, in the insurance industry. My other insurers, my auto insurer, my home insurer, they don't cover all the things that I need for my home. I have to buy my own light bulbs, for example. I'm responsible for repairs on my car. We've, we've evolved into this system. And uh, we've evolved in different, at different rates and, and in different parts of the country in different ways. Um, for example, Kaiser has been around for decades uh, since the turn of the last century. It is a, certainly a payer but it's also an integrated provider organization. In Pennsylvania, the, the state that, that I left uh, to join Aetna, we had UPMC to the west and we had Geisinger to the east. They were insurance companies. They are insurance companies. They were also um, providers of health care in their communities. So there's plenty of evidence of this. Today, um, something that we've established over the past several years at Aetna is creating joint ventures with large integrated delivery systems. We have five JVs across the country. Anova, Alina, Sutter, Banner, Texas Health. We've gone into the insurance business with them. They are um, integrated delivery systems, and they have 50-50 JVs with us to put them, frankly, in the insurance business, that's one way to look at it. Or the other way to look at it is they're, they're, they have total capitation for, for a, a panel of patients in their community where they take full risk. So is this the direction the industry is, is heading, this blurring uh, of boundaries between payers and providers? Ultimately, any way you look at this, this is an evolution from very traditional fee-for-service that had been prevalent decades ago to incrementally, over time, moving towards value-based contracting a risk of one sort or another. And in some cases, like in the case of Kaiser or in the examples I just used with regard to Aetna, it can be full risk. It can be capitation, in other words. Um, I think, and again, this is my point of view, that you know, in a system that emphasizes value and outcomes over volume, is going to be better able to align 
the needs of the individual with the resources in the system. And if done exceptionally well, take the administrative burden off the backs of physicians and other clinicians to do the work that they so desperately want to do and were trained to do in the first place. And I would argue that with the decisions that are being made around bundled-based reimbursement and uh, other value-based reimbursement in Washington, we're going to continue, if, if, if that continues as I would think, you're going to continue to see more and more of a move in this direction. And as I said a few minutes ago, over 50% of the contracts that uh, we have today at Aetna are value-based contracts. So it sounds to me like this shift uh, to value-based care, the value-based contracts, uh, this evolution here is uh, is almost uh, forcing uh, these organizations to blur some of their lines and boundaries and work much more collaboratively. I, I don't see it so much as an integrated uh, system uh, provider, but it's more of a almost kind of like an interdependent value-based network delivery system. Uh, how do you see it? Yeah, I, I would say that um, uh, there's this evolution, and at the same time, there should be a recognition that there's not one perfect model in terms of how care is delivered. I think that uh, there are real advantages over value-based reimbursement as opposed to fee-for-service reimbursement. But I think in terms of the delivery models, there'll be great variation based on the region. I already you know, made a distinction between what's very common in California as opposed to what you might find you know, in other parts of the country. But, but that said, um, if in a community you have a well-integrated um, uh, health system, which can offer everything from care in the community through clinics, you know, near people's homes, all the way to high-end tertiary and quaternary care, and can do it exceptionally well, uh, and can also, and this is exceptionally important, advance research and education at the same time, um, that, has, that has a tremendous value and impact, not only in improving lives, but in the economic vitality of the, of the community and the region, and ultimately in terms of discovery and education. Um, those types of institutions and organizations, you know, are playing an exceptionally important role. We want to make sure that they can be wildly successful in what they do. It's, it, it's to everybody's advantage. I know, and I believe that because I spent, you know, almost my entire career in that world trying to figure out ways to create those integrated delivery systems. So is what you're doing at Aetna now developing a model that is complementary, uh, fitting into what the providers uh, are doing in their communities and into the larger healthcare ecosystem? I mean, is that the picture? Because some might argue that uh, what payers are doing is competing, that you're moving into the zone of delivering care where others are already doing it. So, so how do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, I see it definitely as, as the former. This is one of complementing. It's one of collaboration. It's one of adding value. Um, at Aetna today, um, in, in the United States, we don't employ physicians to deliver care. Um, and on the other hand, we partner in many different ways, as I, I just gave you many examples over the past you know, 20 minutes or so, of how we partner with them, share risk with them, and, and want to work more and more collaboratively as opposed to necessarily employ them. Um, that's a point of view. That, frankly, is the point of view that I had when I was running Penn State's health system. We had 18 affiliated hospitals across central Pennsylvania. We didn't own those hospitals. We partnered with them. We collaborated with them. If we had, um, you know, specialists that they were not able to hire in their local communities, we would have our specialists go to their hospitals to deliver care. Um, we would use tele telemedicine to extend that, that reach because that, we felt, was in the best interest of a local or rural community that would have limited access to those re resources two hours away from uh, our main campus. But it made sense to do that. It created proverbial win-wins through those kinds of partnerships. And I, and I don't view this any differently, quite frankly. Yes, I, I really appreciate the, the picture you're painting and the models that you're creating. I, 
I think one of the challenges as, as someone who works in this field, um, one of the challenges is this issue of coordination and, and, and integration. As a provider, you have multiple payers that you're working with. As a payer, you have multiple providers that you're working with. And figuring out how to coordinate uh, those interfaces uh, so that we're not duplicating services, so that we can communicate information. Again, we're not stepping on each other's toes. Um, you're not sending a care manager to a home where a provider group is sending another care manager to the same home and to the same patient. That requires a level of collaboration, coordination, integration that is really, um, in my experience uh, and reading of the literature, is unprecedented. Um, so I'm curious to hear if, uh, uh, well, A, how you're doing that, um, and, and how you see this picture? Yeah, I think that the, the the most important ingredient and the one that we need the most right now to get to um, to, to to get to that state is interoperable health information, and it's the one thing that unfortunately we still don't we have not yet achieved. Um, but. Um, when we can get to having truly shared health information among all the uh, the providers in that ecosystem that I described before, then we can obviously um, practice evidence-based care. We can reduce waste and inefficiency. We can avoid redundancy of clinical services. Um, and I think most importantly, we can take health information and give it back to the patient and make it actionable. I mean, if you think about the way the system is designed today, it's a patient's own health information, right? But they don't own it. It is locked up in paper files or in digital files. It sits in different silos depending on the system, the payer, the provider, the hospital. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It's not interoperable. And patients, to have access to their own health information, have to go through all types of, you know, mechanics to get access to it. Um, it's, it's unbelievable. It's their health information. And even under the best of circumstances, when um, a, uh, a, a hospital or health system or physician has an EHR and they have a patient portal, to give the patient access to their own health information. Um, much of that information is not, is not as usable as it could be. If I tell, if a patient can look in their chart and see that their BUN is, you know, 60, what does that mean to them? So we have to produce for a patient health information that they can, it's their own, so they have to be able to own it, and we have to present it in ways to them that is truly actionable so that they're able to have ownership and responsibility for their own health status. We certainly do that um, in the financial world. In the financial world, you know, most people's financial information is readily available. They, they own it. It's generally interoperable. You can get it when you need it, and more and more it's being presented in ways that people can do something with it. We have a long way to go when it comes to health data. And, and the very notion that, you know, it's my health information and I don't really feel like I own it. It belongs to somebody else and I have to ask them to get it. To me, explains part of why we have the problems we have. Yes, I, I so agree with you. Uh, this uh, challenge of uh, data oper interoperability is is one we're going to have to solve if, if we're really going to advance uh uh, value-based healthcare. Uh, it's a major issue. So, so I'd like to go back uh, to the issue of consumerism and personalized medicine and, and maybe even touch upon the social determinants of health. Uh, Aetna, uh, just uh, late last year, December 2017 and, and into January 2018, published an inaugural study. It was called uh, the Health Ambitions Study Report, in which you surveyed 1,000 patients and 400 providers to better understand consumers' health goals, their preferences, and actually the relationship between consumers and providers. So what major takeaways did you learn from that study? And again, I know it just came out earlier this year, but uh, is there anything you're doing differently off of that study to um, advance healthcare consumerism, personalized health, and the social determinants of health? Yeah, I think 
the most important thing is um, to better understand what is it that that our members who are our patients and you know they're individuals. What is it that they want from the health system, and that is uh, both on the payer side but also the provider side uh, to to support them and allow them to achieve their aspirations for better health. And in understanding that, what do we need to do to make it more accessible? So if they want from, from the study more time, more direct time for their questions being answered or, or easier access to health information, how do we best do that? And, and in my mind, it goes back to that paradigm I I described earlier, you know, with the three, with the three pillars in it, what, what I read there is they want engagement. Um, and maybe, um, in, in, in certain cases, it's a different kind of engagement than they've experienced in the past from a system that's evolved, you know, slowly over the past century. And how do we continue to advance the health system writ large, not just the provider side, but the entire system to to increase the degree of engagement with each individual to allow them to address their health needs successfully. And I think that's an accept, that's a really important takeaway. And obviously the study is much, much more granular than that, but we need to understand the granular issues if we're going to be able to continue to make um, and evolve the system in the directions that it needs to go. That's great. Thank you. I want to shift here a little bit to discussing an issue that I know you're intently focused on and and passionate about, uh, that is the opioid crisis. Uh, You write a lot about it. And and again, I think we all really respect and appreciate that. Um, So uh, perhaps you could spend uh, a little bit of time uh, informing us as to some of the specific initiatives and the overall uh, comprehensive approach you're taking to deal with the uh, opioid epidemic in this country. Well, I think, yeah, and the, the opioid epidemic is in this country is, is definitely worth some comments. So, um, what we have is, is, is a tragic set of, set of circumstances that again has evolved, um, uh, over the past several decades. And, um, um, it reflects a number of issues, not only in terms of healthcare, but also social and behavioral issues and in, even environmental issues as well. And, um, there are a number of opportunities and, and initiatives that we have underway. We continue to address this uh, almost on a daily basis at this company, figuring out ways to, to, to move forward and to address the epidemic nationally, not just for our members, but as, as, as a national priority for our company, but then also, of course, for our members and for uh, our customers, plant sponsors, uh, and of course, uh, uh, governmental purchasers of healthcare. So first and foremost, it, it has to start um, with prevention. What can we do to decrease the amount of inappropriate prescribing of opioids? It's something that I've been very focused on. We've, and this is where we can use the rich data that we have at Aetna. And I've personally written letters um, to um, to doctors and dentists around the country who are in the top 1% of opioid prescribers. A very personal letter, giving them their data and providing to them the CDC uh, guidelines for appropriate opioid prescribing. Um, and um, we know, for example, that... Uh, you know, in the adolescent and young adult population, um, um, there's a lot of uh, prescribing around um, uh, uh, oral surgery and, and uh, dental procedures. 18% of our prescriptions are written uh, by dentists, for example. We know that 35% of our members are receiving opioids for acute pain. Um, and that's where the big focus is for us in general, um, making sure that if someone does receive a narcotic. It's for a, an appropriate reason. And we're not here to debate should someone at end of life, someone who is suffering tremendous pain from a cancer diagnosis, if they should get an opioid. Of course, if they need it, they should get it. But for acute pain, where the studies that suggest that opioids are any better than receiving a non-steroidal or acetaminophen, those are the opportunities we have to really ask questions about, is it necessary to do this? Because we know that if you receive an opioid for seven days, you have about a 7% chance of becoming addicted to an opioid. 
And certainly if you're on it for two weeks, that number jumps up to about 14%. That's, that's enormous. To have someone become addicted, uh, 14% of the population that receives opioids for acute pain to become addicted by taking it for two weeks is, to me, is just, uh, just an enormous challenge that we have. So we have to be very cautious about this. Now, that's not to say that it's not necessary. There are going to be situations where, of course, it's necessary. But that's where limits around how many pills someone should receive um, and the strength of those pills become exceedingly important. And if they don't need it, why should they get it? Because what will happen is it'll sit on a medicine cabinet. It'll get abused by someone else. It'll get diverted. It'll enter uh, as an illicit, it'll become an illicit drug for somebody else who will then become addicted or is already addicted and providing them with additional narcotics. The greatest challenge we have beyond that is the explosion around illicit opioids, fentanyl and heroin. And, and that's where um, um, making sure that uh, members have access to medically assisted therapy, drugs like Suboxone, for example, to help them to help treat their addiction. We just announced a, a, a recent uh, project um, with uh, several organizations around uh, training of physicians to get certification to prescribe um, medical assisted therapy because you need uh, you need hours of training to be able to get a certificate to, to 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 prescribe those drugs. It's exceptionally important. We partnered with our colleagues at at, at, at the. Um, Department of Emergency Medicine at, at Yale, um, and uh, Dr. Gail D'Onofrio is the chair and, and her faculty. She's given them time off to get that training because of the recognition that they're the front door for getting patients on medical-assisted therapy um, when they're addicted. So that's enormously important. Providing Narcan. Um, Aetna goes out and distributes Narcan, and uh, we do Narcan training because we feel strongly that um, if someone's addicted and if they overdose, they deserve a second chance to get into recovery. But if they stop breathing and they die, they don't have that second chance. So giving them access to Narcan is exceptionally important. And that's, that's another area of opportunity initiative um, that we have. So there are a number of things that we're doing. Um, a great deal of it is based on data, but also it's based on understanding of those six uh, dimensions of health status and understanding that we have to be in the local communities working and partnering with agencies, governmental, not-for-profit, and other organizations, employers, to really make this an effective approach to dealing with this national epidemic. 115 people will die each and every day of an opioid overdose. It's a tragedy. It, it is a tragedy. That is a sobering statistic. Again, I, I want to really applaud you and your colleagues for the work you're doing um, You know, to address the opioid epidemic. I know you spent a lot of time writing about it and talking about it. And obviously, uh, Edna has a very, very comprehensive approach to uh, to dealing with it or to addressing it. I do want to shift back to um, the issue of uh, digital, the digital transformation in healthcare. Um, what's happening now with uh, digital technology? I'm sure you all have a larger strategy around that. So could you speak to some of the uh, initiatives that uh, you're deploying uh, in uh, digital tech consumerism? Yeah, and you know, um, people often ask, so what, what was the big, what was the biggest difference you noticed being, you know, in academic medicine and then joining this, you know, this large Fortune 50 health insurance company. And I often say it's not what you think. You know, it's we have many of the same committees and uh, a lot of the same uh, operating structures. And um, it, what's really different is um, sitting here, uh, I'm approached almost on a daily basis by someone uh, in some part of the country who has some interesting idea uh, for a device, uh, a digital tool, some kind of solution, tech, technology solution that is new and exciting and different. And um, it, it's just amazing what's out there and what people are coming up with. Some of it is, uh, you know, um, um, really early and nascent. Some of it's a little magical thinking, and hopefully it'll prove to be true, but it, at least first blush, it may not. And then some of it really is going to have staying power. And we've seen a number of different approaches that um, are, are demonstrating value or making tremendous sense. We partner 
um, with with those companies and um, and in some cases even invest because we believe that it offers the opportunity to uh, to create this value proposition that I described before and um, I don't want to go through a whole litany but some of it has some of it is in the telehealth space again I think telehealth is at the very flat part of the curve right now and we're going to I believe we're going to see this explode in the coming years as a, a very typical modality for care delivery. And I think it can offer physicians uh, and you don't have, you know, you could be a physician in practice and, and I believe in the future successfully offer this to patients that are part of your practice. I think that's going to be uh, a game changer, in my opinion. There are certain digital solutions. Our Aetna digital app is one that, you know, allows um, um uh, patients to do things uh, digitally that just a couple of years ago they couldn't do. We have a, a digital solution called DocFind, where uh, I mentioned before our partnership uh, uh, for the drug Esperel, which is a uh, an opioid analog, non-narcotic. You can go to DocFind, you can find oral maxillofacial surgeons that use that in their practice so that before you have oral surgery, you know that the doctor you've selected is someone that will will not prescribe a narcotic, but instead will prescribe, hopefully, preferentially, this opioid analog. I mean, those are the, you know, the power of the technology is enormous. And it goes all the way from that one example to huge examples like telehealth. We're going to see that have more and more of a place uh, in, the, in the future of healthcare. And at the end of the day, it's really about, in, in my mind, creating an integrated set of solutions uh, that incorporates the Internet of Things, that incorporates uh, many different solutions on a number of different platforms, but ultimately brings it back to the patient. You know, we're, uh, another area that I have great interest in is blockchain, for example, because it has the opportunity to align uh, on different ledgers these different types of solutions potentially and bringing it back to the individual who could have control over who has access to it and how it's shared. I would love to uh, discuss the uh, blockchain application in healthcare, artificial intelligence, and and ownership of of healthcare data. Uh, we don't have enough time to do that in this episode, but perhaps we could come back to it. But but there are two items you mentioned before that I would like to return to. One is the social determinants of health, and the other are the joint ventures that you've created with uh, provider groups. And let's start with the social determinants of health because you really punctuated that so strongly. So, so you have this wonderful Aetna Wellness Index that you've co-created with the Harvard School of Public Health. So I'm wondering, what are you doing with that index? Are you are you surveying each member, or do you select certain members to uh, to survey? And, and and what do you do when you discover that there's actually a gap or a deficit in a social determinants health? I, I don't know if you're checking specifically for financial issues, social connectedness. If you're looking at issues like food insecurity and and housing and safety and transportation, but the question really is, what lever do you have to solve those problems if you in fact discover them? Yeah, that that's a great question. So we are right now in the pilot phase, um, and um, uh, we've several uh, thousand, several thousand of our own employees have volunteered to be in the pilot. Um, and as part of the analysis we're doing with our colleagues at the uh, school at the Harvard School of Public Health, is now linking those those measures, the index, to solutions that we could bring forward to address where there are perceived opportunities to improve health status. Um, because you're absolutely right. If you don't have that linkage, then all you have is a score. But if you have a, a, um, a way to capture data that is uh, much more granular, like in this test, which has multiple, multiple questions, and then aligned to that, you have particular solutions that are personalized for an individual, you can achieve much better alignment between where the gaps are and where the opportunities are to help an individual with those gaps. Great. Thank you. Again, I so admire uh, your focus and uh, the work that you all are doing in uh, this domain of the social determinants of health. Because as you said before, so much of healthcare outcome is dependent upon uh, this aspect, which uh, until relatively recently, we've uh, really not addressed well. So, so I want to just turn to the other question I had. 
I was really fascinated earlier on in, in this conversation with this picture you're painting of uh, collaborations and the shared risk. You talked about uh, uh, device companies and, and uh, pharmaceutical companies. Um, I'm wondering, how do you share risk with a pharma company uh, that's putting out a medication or uh, manufacturing a device, a device company? How does that work? And when you talked about your joint ventures with Alina and Sutter's and other provider groups, what are those value-based contracts and shared risks about? How, how does this work? Right. So in the first case, um, without going into the mechanics of um, a value-based contract with pharma, because I, I, I can't get into that, they're proprietary. What, what I can say is this, at the end of the day, um, and we can only do this in commercial. We, we cannot do this outside of commercial. Um, in a commercial plan, we could... Uh, have a, a value-based contract with a pharmaceutical company and, uh, and have cer- certain targeted, agreed, pre-agreed upon outcomes against which um, if, if, uh, if success is achieved, the, the company receives a greater payment. And if the, if the outcomes are not achieved, they, they achieve less. I mean, it's, it's frankly that simple. Now, the mechanics of, uh, you know, how you get there is complicated and adjudicating it is complicated. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's like looking at your watch, um, on the face of it that those, those two dials are going around and they, they, they work well, but underneath it are a lot of moving gears to make that happen. And, you know, we are looking, uh, and I have a great interest in this and what are the types of, um, IT solutions, uh, to help make that even more and more efficient, but that's how you're aligning, um, uh, in, in this health ecosystem of solutions through a value-based contract you're creating uh, alignment around the outcomes. Um, and if think about it from the perspective of that pharmaceutical company, not only, can, not only are you going to be financially rewarded for uh, the, the outcomes of the patient or the member receiving your drug, but there's another set of rewards as well. In the situation where um, the patient is not adherent to the meds, um, you're not selling as much drug. And, for a pharmaceutical company in the situation where the doctor thinks the patient's taking the meds, but they're really not, they then assume it's a treatment failure. So what do they do? They switch to a competitor's meds. So that's a triple failure. So by creating this kind of alignment, it could potentially create a triple win for the company that wants to engage in these kinds of value-based contracts. With, um, With health systems, um, what we're talking about is creating a, a new company, a joint venture company that's 50-50 owned. And again, I, there's not enough time to get into all the details, but conceptually, it's a 50-50 jointly owned insurance company that provides insurance for members who are patients at that health system. And in effect, at the end of the day, that makes those patients for that health system effectively capitated. That's fascinating. I'd like to explore this topic more with you, but uh, we're running out of time. So first of all, Dr. Paz, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us today and, and uh, just you know sharing such great insights and uh, such great work uh, with us on creating a new health care. I do think that the work you and your colleagues are doing is fantastic. You know, we've covered so much and, and you've shared so many insights. Uh, the three pillars, uh, the Aetna Wellness Index, the uh, move towards value-based contracts, the focus on engagement and outcomes, the intense focus on social determinants of health, and of course, the opioid crisis, how you all are addressing that. And in particular, those insights you shared about the um, advancing uh, those joint collaborations and that partnership, I think that's just so important. So again, really fantastic. Can't thank you enough. I really respect and admire that the work that uh, you and your colleagues at Aetna are doing to advance uh, value-based healthcare. So, so thank you. And before we end, uh, I do want to give you the opportunity. Is there any final word, any thought or message, uh, take on point you want to leave with our uh, listeners today? Um, I would, I'd say, Zev, um, first of all, thank you very much for the opportunity. And, and uh, I've really enjoyed being on your program. This has been uh, a lot of fun. And um, I really appreciate the questions. Um, I would say that as, as a physician and as someone that still has the privilege of being engaged in patient care, 
Um, I know that there are enormous challenges right now, and there have been, um, but I am the world's greatest optimist, and I see the opportunity to continue to um, um, make sure that patients have the opportunity to, uh, to achieve aspirations for health and wellness, and at the same time, um, ensure that physicians and other clinicians have the opportunity to, to practice um, the work that they were trained to do and to do it in a way that makes it much more effective and efficient and to allow us to create a system that uh, can uh, really deliver the right care at the right time in the right place. And for me, that's just enormously exciting and um, it creates a world of tremendous opportunity. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. And I do hope we uh, have the opportunity to speak again sometime soon. Terrific. Thanks again. Take care. So folks, uh, again, I want to thank our guest, uh, Dr. Harold Paz, the Chief Medical Officer, Executive Vice President at Aetna for being a part of creating a new healthcare and bringing us just tremendously fresh perspectives, really new ideas, bold solutions. And uh, you can see that they are, as many of you, on a quest to advance a sustainable value-based consumer-oriented healthcare system. And of course, as always, I am compelled to uh, thank you, the listeners and participants out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or those of you who are supporting uh, providers of care. Uh, Again, I, I hope this has been as inspiring for you as it has been for me. I just learned a ton. Uh, I think Dr. Paz really shared some really tremendous insights, not only in what's happening at Aetna, but I think uh, what's happening across the country. And uh, so thank you. You've been listening to Creating a New Healthcare. And until next time, be well.